Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast. Today you're going to be listening to an interview that I did recently with an incredibly interesting character. Hisham Al-Gurg, CEO of Seed Capital, a conglomerate here in the UAE. Seed Capital focuses on raising funds and investing the royal family's money to startup investors. So he's in, in the world of understanding the entrepreneur's journey. Hisham was your stereotypical Emirati kid. But then a chance meeting with Jim Rowan, Tony Robbins coach, a real genuine superstar in the world of personal development and self-improvement. That chance meeting changed everything for Hisham. And you're going to hear about it in this story. From that chance meeting to spitting the silver spoon out and literally working in a part-time job while he was finishing his studies where he'd have to walk up to women in supermarket car parks across the United States pulling a string out of a box that was on the inside jacket uh, that he was carrying. I promise you it's probably a lot worse than you can imagine but when he tells the story it's really really a real hoot to listen to. Hisham went from that experience in the United States across to the UAE into the corporate world then he decided time to become an entrepreneur and When you hear what he did and how he did it, it's a really fascinating example of somebody that really went against the system, but worked hard and prepared himself and then created some of the highest amounts of revenue I've seen a new company generate in their first year of business. Nuts, crazy stuff. And now he, you know, he's so focused on helping the younger generation after all of his experience and working with, as a mentor and teaching people how to be mentors. And when you learn about that as well, you can just see that this guy that has gone that whole full circle you know he was lucky to start off with a silver spoon he rejected it went out became successful himself and now he's doing an enormous amount to try and help young people get mentored by people that know what they're doing he's really um, a very corporate guy who learned to be an entrepreneur so please forgive the first one or two minutes as I just open him up a little bit and get him relaxed um, and let him start to share his story because once I, once he does he then he comes at you thick and fast with some great information and it was genuinely a real pleasure to spend time talking to him listen in there's some great anecdotes there's some great examples and I, I know you're just going to really enjoy listening to Hisham if you are listening to me on iTunes please leave me a five-star recommendation I will be eternally grateful and if you're on SoundCloud then please leave me a comment I would be very very grateful if you did that but without further ado Mr Hisham Al-Gurg Thank you so much for allowing me to interview you and your busy schedule. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about yourself. You, you know, I know that you're Emirati, I know you've grown up here, but I really want for the viewers to understand a little bit about you, the personality. So family man, mm-hmm. how many kids have you got? Three. Three kids and you're a family man and you've been in business for how many years? Since 2000, so I would say 17 years. 17 years. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me the first job you ever had? The first job, a computer programmer. So that was the first job you ever had? Yes. How did you get that job? Uh, connection at Emirates Airlines. Okay. Yeah, but through my father, he had connections there. And when you think about that first job you had, was that a job that you really wanted? Or did you kind of fall into that by accident at the beginning? I th- it's not the job that I really wanted to do, and because I left after a very short period of time. 
when you go to university, you have to study something. Mm -hmm. You have to choose a topic. And I kind of struggled between choosing between criminal justice and computer science. Well, they're really different things. Yeah, yeah. But because criminal justice in the US was very different than here, so it didn't make sense that I study criminal justice there. So I picked computer science and realized after a few years this is not the job for me, so I left. I left Emirates in 2000. I joined them actually in 97, but I left in 2000 to start my own business. And did you ever then look back and think maybe I should have taken the criminal route and understood that more in more detail? Or? No, not really. No, no because uh, both of my brothers work in the, uh, you know, one of them is a lawyer who used to be a policeman, the other one's still a policeman. And I see their lives now and I don't see anything special about it. So I thought, I I'm thinking I'm glad I didn't go that route because I enjoy what I do now a lot more. They were saying the other day on the news that they believe that, that, that more than 60% of lawyers are depressed are they? because of the amount of work they have to do or yeah, the amount of time yeah. they spend at work and not yeah. really enjoying their life. That was the early part of your career. Mm -hmm. Was there a point in your career that you can look back on now that was really defining for you, that you remember and you were like, this is who I want to be? Mm -hmm. I think in Dallas in uh, 1995, a friend invited me to a motivational speaker seminar, which I didn't even know what that is at that time. So it was a small seminar, I think we were only like 20 people, but it was a TV channel that was recording the whole seminar. And we spent between 9 until 5 p.m. with him. And he shared his philosophy about life and success and business and self-development and all of that. And I think he inspired me so much that I decided from that day, I'm going to change my life. I will no longer be the, you know, the spoiled uh, kid from the UAE in the US and spending his father's money and having fun in the US, uh, I decided to get serious and explore the self-development and develop myself and not just count on the academic system uh, to develop the skills and knowledge. So I start reading a lot, I start to watch a lot of uh, educational programs, attend a lot of seminars and I learned a lot about business. My first non-formal job was in sales. So I joined a company in the U.S. to sell part-time while I was still going to school. What were you selling? Uh, there was personal security devices. Oh, really? It was a small device you clip on your belt or yeah. the lady can put it in their bag. And if anyone tried to snatch that bag away, he runs away with the alarm sounding. Ah. Uh, and I still remember it was sold for $60, and a lot of the ladies bought it because the crime rate was very high in the US. How did you sell it? Did you go door knocking or telephone? Or um, how did you door knocking, it? friends, and uh, sometimes I would stay in parking lots and at night and walk to people and say, you know, imagine I was, if I was someone who's trying to attack you, uh, how would you defend yourself? You know, no one would hear you. But if you have this, and I would pull the string and this loud alarm would come, and that's how I would sell it. They would love it then and there and pay me then and there. So I learned selling, you know, doing it myself door to door back then in 95. Can, when you think about that, was that a fun experience for you? Well, sales door to door is not fun for sure. <laughs> it's challenging, especially when you get a lot of people closing doors in your face. Yeah. I think that experience, learning about sales at that age, is what shaped my paradigm in terms of what, what do I really need to develop in my skills in order to be a successful businessman. And I realize sales is one of the core skills for entrepreneurs. And we were talking earlier about why did you pick sales, but I think it's the mother of all skills for entrepreneurs for sure.
You really believe that? Absolutely, 100%. So I believe that it's the backbone of every business. If you remove the salespeople from any yeah. company, then yeah. how do they make money? There's no revenue. Absolutely. Yeah. So did you ever describe yourself as an entrepreneur? Did you ever kind of like give yourself that title? Because it's quite commonly used nowadays, isn't right, it? It's kind right. of trendy to be an entrepreneur. Right. But did you feel that building a business yourself was going to be an entrepreneurial venture? Or was it just, I want to be in charge? I don't think it was more of wanting to be in charge. It was more to actually survive. Because what happened when I was in Emirates, I kind of planned the next five years of my life and I looked at some of my friends who are already in Emirates, who've been there for 10 years, and I looked at their lives and I sat down with them and I said, tell me about your finances, tell me about the struggles and issues that you have. And the majority of them had financial issues. And when I found out why, they're UAE nationals, they're well paid in Emirates, they have a good career with a company like Emirates, so everything was great. So why are they in financial debt? Why are they struggling? And what I realized is in the next few years, if you plan to get married, have a nice car, build a house, it's gonna cost more than a million dirhams. Mm -hmm. And looking at my salary and the promotion rate that you would get, I realized that I won't never be able to save a million dirhams if I stay in any job, not just with Emirates. Emirates was, was a good company, actually. And I realized that if I want to accelerate reaching that million dirhams, I have to leave. I have to start my own business. And so after a year and a half of being in that job with Emirates, I found a good business idea that makes a lot of money. I brought a business plan and uh, I traveled around the GCC using my you know, free tickets with Emirates. Okay. Um, and I met with a lot of the telecom operators. So my first business was in uh, telecom value-added services. Mm -hmm. So I started a company called CityLine, which uh, successfully, and lucky for me, it hit uh, 100 million on the first year. And this was back then, back in 2000. Wow. So you can imagine 100 million then, probably be like a billion now. So that was my first journey in business. So did you sell that business? Yes. Okay, and you sold that business, and how did it feel emotionally when you let it go? Was it, was it kind of like joy at first, and then you felt a sense of loss because it was what you'd lived, ate, slept, and breathed every night? You know, sometimes you get wrapped up in it. What did yeah. it feel like? Actually, I didn't sell it by choice. I had to sell it. Okay. Another partner from another country bought shares in it, and then we got into conflict, so I had no choice but to sell it because I didn't want to continue with the business. So I, that's how I sold it, and I went and started something else in, uh, I think that was 2004. And since then, I've been business uh, and closely working with the Royal Family of Dubai as well. So tell me about Seed and the business that you run now. Mm -hmm. What typical client that you work with? Give me an example of that. Well. Because it's a diversified group and in different sectors and different mm -hmm. industries, there is no typical client really. It's a group of seven companies and they all have their own sectors. Uh, so they have the food and beverage sector, the telecom, the consultancy, the business services. Uh, one of them is actually the Entrepreneurship Academy mm -hmm. where we teach entrepreneurs how to start and uh, grow a business. You have also seed investment where we invest in startups as well. Mm -hmm. So it's diversified. And you're talking Series A funding, you're talking about very much seed, angel seed. investing at Ma the beginning? Mainly seed and angel investing. Really? Yeah. So that's the high risk? It is, stuff. but the way we do this, we put students or applicants for funding through our course and we monitor them for six to eight weeks to see whether we should invest with them or not. After eight weeks of 
working with someone or training someone, I think you get the gist of whether you should invest in these people or not. And do you find yourself wanting to invest more in that person because you believe in what they can bring or do you look more so at the business opportunity itself? Are there differences there for you? It's really a combination. A lot of people say they invest in people, but however, if that person is not ready for the business, then you give them money, then they burn it for you and you lose. So I'd rather invest in people that are ready for investment and their business is ready for investment. If I would put the company's money or the sheikh's money into that, I don't want to risk losing the money, obviously. Mm -hmm. So what we do in, the, in our courses, we make sure that their business is ready for investment. If it's not, then we tell them, look, at least we taught you the skills that you need in order to make your business more investor ready. Mm -hmm. Go and come back after a few months, and when you're ready, then we'll reconsider investing in your business. And when you look at the amount that you invest, what's the maximum and what's the minimums that you look at? If it's a startup and it's seed money, the maximum we would pay is half a million. Okay. If it's an existing company, we could go up to five million. So. That's, that's the range. And when you think about the amount of people that present to you their ideas through the different businesses, mm -hmm. how many no's before you find a yes do you think is typical? How many do you reject? Maybe 90%. 90% you reject. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that 90% of opportunities really aren't opportunities or many of the 90% just aren't ready yet? They could be good opportunities, but most of the time we reject them because they fail our assessment and our criteria check. We ask them a few questions and if we feel that you know, they haven't done the homework, mm -hmm. we don't say the business is not good, we just say go do more homework, validate all the assumptions that you have because we're, you, we're betting our money on the assumptions mm -hmm. and if the assumptions are very weak or have not been validated by the customers, by the suppliers that they say they will have, then it's a high risk for us. But if they come back and validated everything that they're putting on that financial projections, then we take them seriously. Do you think that people want to be entrepreneurs nowadays way more than you yes. in the past? Yes, and I think the environment even here in the UAE is much more ready for startup than it was 20 years ago, let's say. Mm -hmm. There are many uh, institutions and even government organizations and private sectors and funds and you know organizations like the one you manage and, and the academies and schools and training centers focus on entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Because I think the government also realizes that uh, the majority of our economies are small companies, small to medium-sized companies. And, and they're the bone for this economy. It's not the large corporations, it's, it's the small companies. Yeah. Um, so unless the government support these kind of companies and make sure they survive for three to five to 10 years, it's gonna impact our economy, so yeah. And do you predominantly focus on investing on startups here in the region or are you open to opportunities globally? We are open to opportunities globally, but it has to be in a sector that we understand and we're comfortable with. We don't mainly invest, we don't put our money in funds, with a few exceptions. We just invested recently in a Washington DC based fund, but it's managed by friends that are based here, the UAE nationals who are living in Washington DC, and they started a fund there. We're also looking at funds in Asia, primarily in, in, in Thailand and China and so on. So if we cover a little bit of the United States, which is the eastern coast, mm -hmm. 
the UAE and Asia. It allows us to have a pulse on what's happening in terms of the sectors that we work in, which is technology and telecom and food and beverage. So we kind of get a feel of where are the trends in technology, where are the trends in food and beverage, where are the trends in telecom from different parts of the world. And that's why these, these three regions. What common mistakes do you see people making? I think the number one mistake I see them that they start way too soon. They're not ready for the business and they resign from their job and they start a business and they're unprepared for the business. The business is not ready, they are not ready, they don't have the experience, they don't have the knowledge. Unfortunately, they're hyped by the motivation of other success stories, mm -hmm. which you can probably count them on your fingers. Mm -hmm. And the reason why these stories are very popular because they are the exception. Because if you look at the failure rate in startups, more than 90%, and the reason why they're that high, because a lot of people are not prepared when they start. Mm -hmm. If we spend the same amount of time that we spend on a university degree we spend it in studying our business before we launch it, mm -hmm. the failure rate will drop drastically, significantly drop. Unfortunately, people, they barely spend months studying for a business that they want to launch. And, and then they wonder why it fails. Because the problem is the excitement of starting a business mm -hmm. overwhelms them and they tend to say, I just need to start and then see how things are gonna go. Unfortunately, things don't go that well before they run out of cash. And I think it's the number one reason why businesses fail, they run out of cash. Yeah. It's like a car running out of fuel before it reaches its destination. So they're underfunded, they're unprepared, and they don't have the skills and the knowledge and the experience to do what they want to do, despite the, the motivation. And to make things worse, they go and borrow money. So they borrow from friends and families and banks and so on. And when they <coughs> lose in that business, they end up in a worse situation than they were when they first started. It's almost like they've paid, haven't they? They've paid, they've paid to, to, to build their own business. It's not like there's anything they're going to get from it. Right. Plus, they've got the debt that goes with it afterwards. Right, right. And the bad feeling with family members that sometimes is created. Absolutely. When you look at the success stories, whether it's the Lyft, the Uber, the Indiegogo, the, the, all of these wonderful... People don't talk about the failures. Yes. Because who's going to go around waving the flag saying, I failed, you know? Yes, correct. And that's, that's why people get kind of seduced by the success stories, don't they? Absolutely, absolutely. I find that a lot. Everybody wants to refer to a story of success, mm -hmm. of something, maybe not in the same industry, but in a parallel industry. Mm -hmm. And they think they're going to be, I hear this term, I'm going to be the Uber of this, or I'm, yes. going to be the, I'm going to be the Airbnb of that. And it's like, really? So it's frustrating. One other thing I've noticed, and maybe you can share this with me as well, is that I find that lots of entrepreneurs don't realize how lonely mm -hmm. it is being in charge of yes. your own business. Yeah. You know, when you work for an organization and you've got many, many colleagues to bounce ideas off or just to get enthused by and, and yeah. have some chit chat with, when you're on your own as an entrepreneur, invariably you're not starting out of a plush office anywhere, you're starting yes. out of a spare room in your house, aren't Absol you? Absolutely. Do you find that that's a problem? I think it's becoming less of a problem because now you have a lot of communities where you can go and, 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 and you know, meet people and who are thinking the same way or maybe in the same 
industry, if it's e-commerce or if it's food and beverage. And I think uh, more mentors now are available mm -hmm. and they're willing to dedicate time. Um, and I highly recommend that if you're going to start any business, go to a mentor. Uh, as long as it's not competitive to the mentor's business, sure. uh, a lot of mentors are willing to dedicate time and effort and experience and even sometimes money contacts to a starting entrepreneurs because they can relate. They were there in their shoes 10, 15 years ago and they feel like, oh God, I wish if I had a mentor like that. And when people make money, you know, it's no longer about the money. They, now they start to think about giving back. Mm -hmm. So they start giving time and, and, and experience and knowledge to a lot of startups and they're available everywhere. So if I was a young entrepreneur, which unfortunately I'm not young anymore, but if I was a young entrepreneur and I came to you and I said, you know what, that's really good advice. Mm -hmm. Point me in the right direction to find a mentor. Yes. Because I get this question a lot. Yeah. Point me in the right direction. Where would you tell them to look? I would say look in, your, in the industry that you want to start because it doesn't make sense if you want to start an e-commerce business and you go to someone who's in traditional business, let's say in real estate, mm -hmm. they don't click, right? And they sure. won't add a lot of value to you. But if it's e-commerce and it's not competing with the mentor's business, I would say start there. Um, what, just reach out to yeah. someone that's done what you've done before and yeah. just say, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. I really love Absolutely. to pick your brains. Absolutely. But you have to also you know, be prepared for that meeting. You can't just walk into mm -hmm. someone and say, I want your time, energy, and experience. Are you willing to give it to me? I know you don't know me, but uh, I'm just proposing that. Yeah. It can be like that. It's just like any sales pitch. It has to be done right at the right time. Uh, the atmosphere and the environment has to be right. The mentor has to be ready. And uh, I think most of the time, the best time to catch these mentors are uh, at events mm -hmm. where they're speaking. And usually before they speak, uh, not after they speak because usually they get bombarded with a lot of people who want to yes, talk to do. them. So if you know where they're speaking, you prepare for that and you go ahead and you have your pitch line ready and you have to grab their attention and make sure that the whole experience of mentoring you would be interesting. And I don't think you should start by saying, would you be able to mentor me for the next one year or two years while I start my business? Yeah. You ask for a small uh, you know, help with something or advice and get the phone number and then contact them and meet them for coffee and so on. Build the relationship. Because you know, I've done mentorship before and to be honest, it's time consuming. Mm -hmm. uh, it's distracting from the normal day-to-day -day business as well. And sometimes when you find a mentee that is not serious or committed, it's also disappointing for us. Mm -hmm. And you feel like, do I really wanna do this mentorship program again? And most of the time, if the person is not committed, you don't. I don't think always though, a mentee really, really understands the amount of time, effort, and energy and passion goes into building a successful business. True. A mentor generally has had, had the pain, had the hurt, yeah. gone yeah. down that path. And so when they're, when they're looking for someone to mentor, they want to see that same kind of commitment, don't Absolutely. they? And it's Absolutely. so easy to identify that that's not yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with you. It's almost like you want them to be successful more than they want to be successful when you mentor them. Absolutely. And for me, that can be yeah, somewhat frustrating because I think there's a real underestimation of the amount of pain that you have to go through to be successful mm -hmm. and uh, I think lots of people think it comes easy it doesn't um, and it, doesn't. it certainly doesn't yeah you're right yeah, yeah. you said that earlier on about Jim Rowan that mm -hmm. really interests me because I work quite closely with Tony Robbins and okay. uh, a big fan of the work that he does I was just in Las Vegas with him just two weeks ago right. and Tony was trained by Jim yes and Jim was quite inspirational to me as a younger man and I yeah. listened to a lot of the stuff that he did is there anybody in your life 
apart from Jim, that really was somebody that you held a candle to and you thought, I want to be like this guy? There are a lot of good businessmen out here in the UAE that I looked up to and I felt like, you know, they were nobody and now look at them where they are. One of them is Mohammed Al-Abbar who was a normal government employee. And then you see where he is today and what he has done with Omar. You know, obviously with the blessing of, of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed and the support that he gave to, to Omar as well. He's now on the Forbes list as you know, one of the billionaires of, of, of the UAE. And to go from a government job to reach that is, is inspiring. So he's one of the people that actually inspired me to, to succeed in, in this country. Uh, my father also, I have to give him credit for believing in me. I had two different reactions at home from my mother and my father. My mother is like, you know, don't be crazy, don't leave your job. Uh, you, you're going to get married soon, stick to your job, get a, you know, a sustainable income. And my father was completely the opposite. He was like, go for it, take a risk, leave your job, and you'll never know until you fail, so might as well try. So I think the, a lot of the motivation that, and the belief that your parents give you and mm -hmm. is very, very important, whether it's your father, mother, or even your spouse, mm -hmm. extremely important. Because this daily motivation that they give you, I believe in you, I know you can do it, keep trying, it's just words, but the impact of them are extremely very strong. The opposite is true, where it says, you know, look, you already failed once, why you want to do it again? You know, you're not good at this. Yeah. Or you're a failure. Even our society is not very accepting of people that fail. And they don't, that's why they want to talk about it. But actually, when I mentor someone and when we teach in the Entrepreneurship Academy, I tell them, I want you to fail more but I want you to fail very fast. Mm -hmm. Because the longer it takes you to fail, the, you know, the longer the damage will be. Make a mistake, learn from it quickly, get up, make another mistake, keep making mistakes until you get it right. Mm -hmm. But if you don't make mistakes and you continue to believe in your own dream, which doesn't become reality, it's a problem. That's quite an interesting thing to talk to people about. And yeah. In practice, nobody wants to make mistakes, do they? Exactly. But you're absolutely right. You need to make mistakes, learn from them, and continue forward. Yeah, I get where yeah. you're coming from. Yeah. So you've had inspiration from your family. You had external inspiration from somebody who you went to a seminar with just randomly back many years ago. Mm -hmm. When you look at your career now, where it's sitting today, where do you see the next five years? What do, what do, you, what do you want to be that you're not already? I think after the Jim Rohn experience, which really, and at that age, I think I was 24 or something, when you see someone like that, the words and the inspiration, at that time, I thought I would love to do what he's doing, going out there and speaking in public and helping people and so on. So that day I said, I'm gonna become a speaker. And I start practicing and I start doing more speaking engagement events and so on until I got okay at it. And I think the next five years for me will be less in managing businesses and more in giving back and sharing and, and training and development and so on. One of my uh, goals when I came back from America, I said one day I'm going to start an entrepreneurship school or academy to teach people what the universities and schools, the traditional academic schools are not teaching, which are the entrepreneurship skills. Yeah. Um, and I started that already with Seed Entrepreneurship Academy. We're heading more towards now training people on practical skills rather than you know non-practical skills. It's the doing part of business yeah. that I think people are lacking. Because if you look at it, there's a lot of content and knowledge out there. Mm -hmm. 
but it's the practical side that's missing. Mm -hmm. And I think with the technology, with e-learning and online learning, I think it has revolutionized what people can learn in a very short period of time at the comfort of their own home while mm -hmm. they're exercising, while they're eating, while they're, you know, even before they go to bed. Yeah. So knowledge is available out there. It's the practical training that is needed. Someone to grab someone by the hand and say, let me show you how to sell. Let me show you how to close a deal. Let me show you how to negotiate. Let me show you how you do a proper online marketing plan and execute that campaign and so on. This is where I think the opportunities are, are, are for us as a group in the next few years, and that's where I'll be focusing on. Now we're past the stage of it's just about money. It's about really, you know, leaving something behind for the, for the next generation. I always, when I travel around the world and I, and I see people who are in the street selling stuff, and I talk to some of these people and I say, you know, while you buy something from them to eat, you ask them, so tell me your story. And you would be shocked to find out that, that university graduate, they have a degree, mm -hmm. and it's been 10 years and they haven't found a job. And this is the main foundation for me to say, the government has to shift their focus from teaching people how to get a job and teaching them academic stuff and more towards training them how to become successful entrepreneurs. Because in every country in the world, there are not enough jobs out there for the number of graduates that are coming out of university. Mm -hmm. At least that's my belief. Yeah, yeah. And no matter how hard the government tries to create those jobs, it won't keep pace with the amount of people that are being produced by the universities. Yeah. So the only way, I think, to solve this problem is to create more entrepreneurs and to create more training institutions, government and private sector that trains people on the skills needed to start a successful business. And I think one of the reasons you started what you're doing because you felt that there's a need mm -hmm. and there are not a lot of people or even official institutions that are doing what you're doing. And that's why you see a good reaction to it. People are joining your courses because you provide courses of value and good content and, and they're learning and they keep coming back. And they can't find it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. At least you have uniqueness in what you're teaching. Does that mean that, or do you think that traditional university, in its traditional sense with what it teaches traditionally, it's outdated and it should be updated? I mean, my, my daughter's 18 mm -hmm. and my, my youngest is 15, so I have two daughters. Mm -hmm. And my 18-year-old's going to be going to university uh, next year mm -hmm. and we're choosing universities for her to go to now. I think a lot of it is she's going to university because my ego dictates that she should go to university. And she's like, what will I learn there that I won't learn working for three years? Right. And my feeling is, depending on who I'm talking to, what the right, answer right, should be. Right, I think right. deep down I wanted to go because I wanted to get the alumni more than anything else mm -hmm. at the university. That, yes. Those connections and that network I think is very important. Absolutely. But what she actually studies I'm not entirely sure it's as up-to-date as maybe it was in the past. What do you think about that? I think a lot of the content that the university is teaching, it's good if you're going to be a specialist in something, a doctor, maybe a lawyer, mm -hmm. maybe an architect. Certain jobs, yes, it's good to go to university and because they teach you the basic foundation or the certificate that you need in order to get these jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's not bad that if you studied law, for example, to go open your own law firm and, and practice and mm -hmm. make money, and, and that's a business. Yeah. If you you know learn medicine and become a doctor, yeah, you work for a few years in a hospital and then you start your own clinic, and that's a business. So not everything in the university is outdated. 
but the majority is. I would say more than 80% of what they teach you in school is outdated. Because, you know, with, with the internet now and the knowledge sharing and how fast technology is making everything obsolete in no time, mm -hmm. learning online is much, much more effective than, than uh, you know, going to university and spending four years. As long as you can pair it up with practical learning too. Absolutely. Yeah. See, with all these jobs like architects, and doctors and lawyers, they, they don't just give you knowledge, but they also teach you the practical side of it in university. Mm -hmm. So when you come out, you're not just knowledgeable, mm -hmm. but you're also skillful, right? Yeah. So they, when they give you a patient, you know how to handle them because you've been taught these skills in university. Uh, as a programmer, it's the same thing. They taught us how to program in university. But if are the programming classes in school, are they outdated? Definitely. Is it effective what they're teaching in school? Not that much. Do I need four years to learn programming? Not really. You could probably need four weeks, but not four years. And it's funny because I spent three and a half years of my university time learning things that had nothing to do with programming, right? The, the time that it takes you to be proficient in a skill has shrinked a lot. If I was a minister of education, any country, and if you ask me what I would do with the educational system, I will completely change it to teach people more practical skills in a very, very short period of time because the competition between graduates is, is fierce. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to come out just like any other graduate out there, you're going to be fighting for the same scarce job opportunity. And I don't think all of them will get that job. Would I make students, would I take your daughter or son and put them in a four years program and they're just going to be just like everybody else? Mm -hmm. No. But I would put them in a four years program so that by the end of the four years, there's no one out there in that city or that country as an expert as your daughter or son in that field. So they become so specialized that, you know, it's like I give you a book or an industry and I tell you, Spencer, spend the next four years learning it. Probably after one year, you become more experienced than all of us mm -hmm. or all the people in your circle. Why can't universities do that? The reason why, because it's very expensive to do that for them. Mm -hmm. So unless you have personal investment from the family, from the student himself, mm -hmm. and from the government to make a very specialized program for each and every student, is not going to work. And if universities cannot do that, then there's no choice for the families except to design a separate program for their children and son and daughter outside of university to train them on that. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see some of the most successful people in this world are specialists, are very focused on what they do. They're not generalists. And I think what universities are producing are generalists, the jack of all trades. Rather than a master of one. Right. When you think about uh, the kind of Bear Grylls example of learning practical skills so you can survive in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. I think that's another aspect of business that maybe maybe young entrepreneurs don't learn when they're younger. What, what, are, what are the skills I can learn so that when I, when I leave college, I can go into the workplace mm -hmm. and I can go and start a business and go ahead and make that business successful. That's a lot of the time I find that those practical skills really, really aren't there for people. Mm -hmm. And that's for me what's frustrating because if we need to build more entrepreneurs, we need small businesses to grow, then people need not to come out of university and work for five years at a company before they say, hey, I'm gonna go on my own. Right. Because invariably that job won't be their dream job in the first place anyway. 
It's really interesting talking to you and understanding your perspective. You. It's really been really valuable spending time with you. Okay. So you, you're a successful business guy. You're taking time to give back and it matters to you that you can teach others. We agree with how the education system works. If, if I meet somebody on my travels that has a rip-roaring idea, mm -hmm. a great business that they're just starting at the moment, they've done their homework, they're prepared, and they're the kind of person that, that you would consider looking at, how would, how would they get in touch with you? Just call the company and let them send an email to the company and they'll get to me. It'll get to you. Absolutely. Okay. So if they come to me and I ask them to talk to you. Absolutely. Yeah, they'll definitely, talk to you as well. Definitely. Now look, for investors, Spencer, as you know, we have no choice but to find alternative investment opportunities other than putting our money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Because the interest that you get in the bank is, is, is you know, very, very small. Sure. And if you're, and as Muslim, because we pay zakah, mm -hmm. it doesn't even cover the, the zakah, which is 2.5%. Mm -hmm. So we have no choice but to find different, more risky areas to invest in. And I love to invest in business because I feel it gives you the highest return of any other investment in any asset class ever. And that's why you see a lot of large organizations, they start funds. The job of this funds is to find companies like that who are ready, who have an amazing idea. And some funds decide to enter at an early stage, some in the middle, some at the end. But you know, the, everybody's on the search out there trying to find that unique entrepreneur that have the right idea, the right business, and the right opportunity out there. That That's could be the next reassuring. Uber. The audience don't believe that. Okay, what they believe is that they have to knock on many doors and nobody's really interested. But the fact is you guys are out there. You've Very got money, so. you want to get a better return than the bank, you're looking for great opportunities, mm -hmm. so you can't help but to investigate all that's going on. Hisham, thank you so much for your time today. You're I really welcome. appreciate talking to you. My Maybe pleasure. you can come and join us on the show again in the future. Sure, anytime. Welcome back. Did you enjoy that? I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Hisham Al Gurg. What a great guy and what really interesting story he has. And not only that, the kind of things that he's doing nowadays to try and help young entrepreneurial types, you know, men and women out there that are trying to build businesses, trying to help them realize the benefits of mentorship and make them more prepared really for what they really, really need to do to create a successful business. So Hisham's a great guy. He got into the world of sales, had to sell product and those kind of like prospecting skills that he had to create. And remember in the olden days, it was all about the cold calling and the door knocking. And if you remember what he said, he was like, no, I didn't like any of that. That wasn't the kind of thing for me but um, how critical those skills are in business. I thought that was a really interesting point. Also, that stereotype that we have. So many people have that stereotype of that rich Emirati kid going to the United States to study, living with the silver spoon. And then that, I remember that chance encounter with Jim Rowan and it just changed his dimension, changed everything about how he thought. And he decided that he wanted to be successful on his own two feet. And you can imagine how tough that is when you've got a rich and successful father behind you. Just imagine how tough that is to walk away from that and say, do you know what, Dad? Thanks, but I'm going to do it myself. I've got a lot of admiration and respect for people like that. Um, when he was talking about you know, the, the amount of companies that fail, startup businesses that fail, it really resonated with me because I remember with one of my businesses, we were going to raise capital on one of those companies once and we hadn't been in business that long and we decided to raise capital. We went through the planning process and then I pulled back and said, you know what, we'll self-fund this. And the reason we did is that 
I think we just didn't know enough about what we were doing and we probably would have fallen into one of those companies that someone like Hisham would have rejected for funding had we done it. The points resonated with me and reminded me of where I've been and, and so I'm glad I didn't make that mistake because... Yeah, I wouldn't have liked to face even more rejection. And so, yeah, great learning experience from there. He really is a fantastic guy, Hisham. And uh, whilst he's quite quiet when he first starts to talk, he just opens up and he just flourishes. And uh, yeah, sharing that time with him was just something I'm going to remember for a long time to come. Okay, so the next interview coming up is with Omar Al-Baswadi, a young tech entrepreneur here in the UAE, author of a book called Just Read It, a larger-than-life character in so, so many ways. So you really will look forward to listening to Omar, a real energetic kind of Duracell bunny of a guy. So look out for that. If you have been listening to us on iTunes, then please leave a five-star recommendation. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you've been on SoundCloud, then guess what? If you're on SoundCloud, I'd love it if you could leave a comment, and I'd be very grateful if you did that too. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you on the next episode.